the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Tomb Believers, the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And we are now three episodes in to our massive summer-long Inferno! That's right, we're looking at the 1988 X-Men crossover that uh, turned up the heat on the Marvel Universe. And we are joined today, as we are on all our episodes. Oh, sorry. Trey, introduce yourself first. Sorry. Hi, I'm Trey. I'm here, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See? Isn't he nice? Uh, we are, of course, joined by a very special guest on this Inferno coverage, and that is, of course, Adriana. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, thank you. Long-time contributor to various Cinepunks-related projects. Including a now-defunct Alpha Flight podcast. Which I very much enjoyed when that was running. Um, I was a regular listener. We'll talk to you about that after the show. Uh. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> we have we have too much stuff to cover to this is go true. on any Alpha Flight tangents. But. but before we get into the books themselves, what we have been asking all of our guests since we started Inferno is to talk a little bit about your relationship to the the X books broadly and 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 how you came to them and and what your thoughts are about Inferno they're from then or after the fact what brought you to the X books that's right Trey it's a segment we've been calling previously on X-Men well uh, i was born in 91 and so my first exposure to the X-Men was through the animated series i loved the X-Men cartoon uh, and then i had um, a much older stepbrother who collected comics. So I started getting into comics through him. And so naturally, I, I gravitated to the X-Men because I was familiar with them from the cartoon. And it was the same thing with like Batman and Superman. Like I loved Batman, the animated series. And then later, the new adventures of uh, like Batman, Superman. Um, but yeah, so initially, I got into the X-Men through the animated series. And then, I mean, like a lot of X-Men fans, you know, I was I kind of a weird kid, like an outsider. So I really related to um, that aspect of the books that, uh, and then as I got older and started to understand myself more as a queer person, the the mutant metaphor really resonated with me. Um, and yeah, the, it's, I've, I said to you guys before we recorded that I've never really been a Marvel person per se, but I've always really liked the X-Men. So that's where it all started with me. And then in high school is when I really started getting heavily into the comics and going back and reading um like the full claremont run and some of his other stuff like excalibur and yes. uh yeah i love excalibur we'll but... be doing a couple issues of that in, in info awesome so yeah that's that's <laughs> basically my story with the x-men who's your favorite x-men 
Oh my God. What a loaded question. <laughs> um, Don't worry. We're just judging you. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. I kind of gravitate more towards the villains. I always have. And I, uh, the X-Men villains in particular are very queer coded. Um, so like, I've always loved uh, like the brotherhood of mutants when it was Mystique and destiny. Like, I, I guess I'll just say Mystique and destiny are two of my favorite characters. Um, <laughs> Uh, but as far as like the hero side, um, well, I love Kitty and Ileana, uh, and we'll be talking more about Ileana later on because she plays a very significant role in the New Mutants issue that we'll be covering. Um, but yeah, I guess like Mystique and Destiny are my t- my my two faves. They are really important characters, especially for that specific area you were talking about, yeah, uh, where where they were heading up the the Brotherhood and later Freedom Force and yeah. And they've also like I so I I took a break, a big break from X-Men comics because I just was not a lot of the the stuff that was coming out in like the mid to late 2000s was just not connecting with me. But I came back when Hickman uh, took over and did House of X, Powers of Ten and Mystique and Destiny uh, play very significant roles in this new Krakoa era of the X-Comics, too. So it's nice to see them. Get the respect they deserve. I need to read more of the the Hickman and post Hickman stuff because what I've read I like, and, and I'm sort it's of in fantastic. the same. I'm in the same ballpark as you. I think I loved the Grant Morrison run. Yep. And then I dropped off when Whedon took over, and then read bits and pieces of Hickman, but haven't strongly gotten back into it. The the one other like X the the X stuff that I think is worth reading from that like wilderness era as some people, including Hickman himself, call it is Mike Carey's run, like Messiah mm. Complex. All, all like Ma- Mike Carey stuff is really good. But uh, sa- same ju- like I kind of had a similar story where after New X-Men, that's when yeah. it kind of fell off for me and I didn't really get back into it in earnest until uh Hickman in 2019. Like I I had read sporadically before Morrison and Mostly like you because of the cartoon. Um, got back into it because of the movies, and that was around the time Morrison took over. Um, and, and and I pretty much stayed consistently with that run when Morrison was on it because it's quite good. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, it, it does seem like Hickman's approach to the X Men was a lot like the sort of stuff that led into the era we're talking about. The the really thinking about all of these books as telling an interconnected story and really uh, establishing stakes for the characters and, yeah. and uh, emphasizing the, the interpersonal relationships as being meaningful. And so giving that, mutants as a people more agency than they've had in a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like if, if we are going to treat this as a distinct, whether you want to call it ethnicity or nationality or, or what, if it's going to be that distinct thing, it needs to be treated that way. Yeah, yeah. I I really want to read some of the Hickman stuff as well. I I just gotta find a, some place to schedule it with all my other reading projects. Yeah. I have a I have like a a reading guide list too. If you need it, it's like a really comprehensive list of like wh- the or the reading order. Um, so I can send that over to you later. Because for a while there were so many books that it could be hard yeah. to keep track of. Yeah. Okay. I think most of it's available on Hoopla or um, where right. your services and Marvel Unlimited. Oh yeah, that 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 is a thing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. 
Speaking of Marvel Unlimited, we have quite a few books to talk about this week. We do. Great segue. <laughs> <laughs> we have Spectacular Spider-Man number 146, Fantastic Four 322, Web of Spider-Man number 47, Exterminators number 3, and New Mutants number 71. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and be right back after these messages. This is Gary Butterfield. This is Cole Ross. And this is Orb, a Venture Brothers podcast. Yeah, this is a new show on the DuckFeed.tv network talking about the Venture Brothers, a cartoon that we both really enjoy episode by episode. And this is kind of a call like, hey, if you want to uh, listen to that, you can subscribe to the show. Yeah, subscribe to this feed. You can also find more information at Orb.show online or find information on all our shows at DuckFeed.tv. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Episode by episode, covering every special, um, you know, supplemental material, everything related to the Brothers Venture. Yes. If you want to get episodes early, you can go to patreon.com slash DuckVTV. That is the Patreon for our entire network of shows. We are entirely listener supported, and you can listen to episodes one week before they come out for everybody else. Listen up, world. This is Spider-Man. You're on the guest list. Yeehaw! For an all-morning 4th of July revelation. Took the words right out of my mouth. Only the best are invited. Flame on! But party crashers? No. Got to bounce. It's over. Keep telling yourself that. Check out the 4th of July revelation next Saturday morning at 8, 7 central on Disney XD. Yes. Let's see who backs down first. All right, Tomb Believers, welcome back. Uh, first up in our look at Inferno is Spectacular Spider-Man, number 146. Writer on this one is Jerry Conway. Art by Sal Buscema. Rick Parker is doing letters. Bob Sharon's on colors. Jim Salakrup is editor. And Tom DeFalco is editor-in-chief. And first off, let's look at this co- cover. It's It's kind of a standard Spider-Man cover. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, you, you've got sort of an, an allusion to the the factory attack that will come up in the middle of the issue. And there's a little, like, you know, you get a little, little bit of Hobgoblin in the background there. And if you're a Hobgoblin fan thinking, oh boy, Hobgoblin's in this issue. <laughs> well, <laughs> then you should probably wait for another issue in this episode. Yeah, it's one of those yeah. slightly misleading covers that you'll see sometimes. <laughs> Although, at least in this case... You see about as much of him on the cover as you do in the issue. Yeah. Um, okay. Because fair. he's only, he's sort of in the shadows in the issue too. So it. Yeah. I. But if you I, saw I, that, you might be hoping for more. Absolutely. And it does not deliver. It's, no. No. Um, not at all. So our story begins with Spider-Man, and of course that's Peter Parker. Uh, Spider-Man swinging above the rooftops of New York, swinging back from class, thinking about what a great day it's been. And then he gets attacked by a storm drain that come to life. He thinks this must be more work with Mysterio, except when he rips it open, it isn't full of circuits and gears, but in fact, storm drain. Storm drain. He returns to his apartment, where he finds that his lovely wife, Mary Jane Watson, Parker, and her cousin, Chrissy, are out shopping, which gives him plenty of time to take a shower. Although he decides not to for some reason, because he's, he's tuckered out from 
fighting the storm. The, the it's not storm vent. It's a storm vent or water. It's a fan. Looks vent. like an air duct. It's a fan vent. Okay, it's a fan vent. Sorry, and he's took it out from finding a fan vent. But all I can think of the whole time is, man, he must stink. Um, but because I imagine web swinging builds up a sweat. Yeah. Like, and of course we cut away to Chrissy and Christy and Mary Jane doing some grocery shopping, um, talking about how Christy really puts it away, and he doesn't seem to gain a pound. You must have a metabolism like a blast furnace. <sighs> anyway, uh, that she's trying to convince Mary Jane to help her get into the modeling industry. She's like 13. But while she's doing that, we get more examples of, you know, like street lamps turning into monsters. Then we uh, go to um, Robbie Robinson um, talking to his wife about how he's going to plead guilty to being an accessory to murder because he witnessed the murder done by Tombstone as a younger man and never went to the police about it. Um, he has a fight with wife about it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, in our next bit of all subplots accounted for, uh, Harry Osborne wakes up in a sweat after a bad dream and talks to his wife about maybe it's time they move out of his dad's old house. Gee, Harry, really? You think so? Uh, speaking of goblins, uh, the hobgoblin is, sa- is flying overhead, looking all sinister, and then flying off. Uh, Peter's taking a shower when he's walked in on by Chrissy, who apparently just has zero consideration for other people's privacy. She's got to learn to respect boundaries. She right. really does. <laughs> and they just play, they just play it off like a joke. He he he! Yeah. It's so funny. I'm like, no, I would not be okay with my wife's 13 year old cousin just wandering into the bathroom while I'm taking a shower. Um, then we have uh, Peter getting a call, phone call from Harry saying he needs to cover right away to the factory, the old chemical plant. Meanwhile. Um, and again, another account of all subplots accounted for. Ben Urich finds out about a massive mob hit where 20 of the Kingpin's lieutenants were taken out by a mysterious assassin. Um, there's a funny scene with J. John Jameson, almost seeming like a respectable journalist for a second there. Um, Glory Grant meets a handsome man, which will be picked up on later. And meanwhile, at the chemical plant... Harry and Peter are walking around. Harry, Peter, why aren't you wearing a hard hat? Come on, seriously, dude. Uh, and Harry's talking about all the things that are weirding him out about living in his dad's old house, unaware that his dad was the Green Goblin. He even was the Green Goblin for a brief period himself. Um, then the chemical plant comes to life as a result of Inferno. There's some fighty fighty. Uh, Spider Man rescues Harry. The other people get away. And the hobgoblin is flying overhead, looking like, oh well, he he he, to be continued. And then, at Harry's house in Hicksville, Long Island, um, he has another nightmare and is visited in his bathroom mirror by the face of the Green Goblin, to be continued in Web of Spider-Man 47. I actually like this issue. Yeah, it's a fun issue. It's fun. It, it does a thing that I think sometimes the Spider-Books in particular would get criticized for which is this issue doesn't really have much of its own identity it's just sort of picking up threads of stuff that have happened in other spider books without really concluding any of them it's just sort of it's just sort of in between it it reminds me a lot and this is appropriate of the triangle era superman books a little bit 
a little bit. Like, well, and, and I think post John Byrne, the, and if you look at the creative teams that were doing the Triangle era Superman books, they were kind of deliberately applying the Marvel style of the late 80s to Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, because you had the Simonsons, you had Dan Jurgens, you had uh, a lot of people who had Marvel experience sort of bringing that to bear on, on DC books. And I think there's a little bit of that here. I don't know that it's always successful. Maybe it's because I just haven't read this era of Spider-Man in a while, but I could have used a few more editorial notes to remind me of what was going on with some of these characters. Yeah. So you can imagine how I feel when like, I'm not even very familiar with Spider-Man. So I'm like, I'm just going to grab what I can from context clues. And weirdly, the one guy that I recognized and have seen elsewhere is Eduardo Lobo because he showed up in, in a, uh, the clone conspiracy. The one of the Ben Riley is a awful person stories. Oh, who is he? Oh, um, so I don't know if we're going to see any of this, but he's actually, he is a mutant whose mutant ability is that under a full moon, he turns into a werewolf, but he's not a supernatural werewolf. He is a mutant. Because the Marvel Universe didn't have enough werewolves? Right. That makes him distinct both from werewolf by night and from manwolf, who are both also different kinds of werewolves. And his name is Eduardo Lobo. Yep. Yep. The brain. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's yep. a regular he's a regular fixture in the spider books for a while during this era. Like they couldn't just bring back Manwolf. Well, then you also have Wolfsbane too. There was a lot of people right. transforming into wolves going on at Marvel. <laughs> yeah, and, and and but none like consistently the same kind of wolf. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, when I started reading comics, I came in during the tail end of this whole Harry Osborn storyline. Because this lasts for years. Oh, yeah. With Harry, like, steadily getting sicker and sicker. And even with the Hobgoblin stuff, I think at this point, we're technically into the second wave of Hobgoblin stories. So I think Ned Leeds has already been, quote unquote, outed as mm-hmm. the first Hobgoblin. Yeah, this is the this is technically the third Hobgoblin. Right. Uh, Jason McIndale. Um, because the original was... Oh, God, I can't remember his name. Roderick Kingsley, technically. Yeah, Roderick Kingsley. And then he... But, but he, you don't find that Sandman? out until after. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, never mind. That's <laughs> totally not even the same company. <laughs> I, I have like... I got three hours of sleep last night. You're good. Please. You're good. I, I implore your listeners, do not crucify me. We're uh, getting DC and Marvel mixed up for a second there. You go well, pass. We, I, we were talking about Superman books not five minutes ago, so it's yeah. fine. <laughs> So, yeah, um, for our listeners who aren't aware, um, Roderick Kingsley was the first and original Hobgoblin. But it wasn't uh, revealed until after this. Yeah. it. I guess things got too hot for him, so he decided he was going to, like, bury the Hobgoblin personality for a while. So he frames Ned, Ned Leeds to be the Hobgoblin. Make everybody think that Ned Leeds is the Hobgoblin, and he goes off to Europe. Right. And Ned Leeds dies. Yeah. Ned Leeds dies. And people's like, oh, the Hobgoblin's gone. Well, then this third Hobgoblin, Hobgoblin shows up, Jason McIndale. Who, does, is he the one who ends up being Jack-O-Lantern? He was Jack-O-Lantern first. That's what it was. He was Jack-O-Lantern first. There's then, so many goblins. <laughs> yeah, Jack- so many so many goblins hobbing around. Hobgoblins, Hobgoblins, what do you do with those Hobgoblins? They're over here, they're over there. Those darn hobgoblins are everywhere. Woo! <laughs> um, 
And is it Mackendale who becomes the demo goblin for a while? Spoilers. That happens later. Yes. <laughs> that was later in this crossover, man. Come on now. Sorry. I mean, that's a character I know from like Maximum Carnage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he ends up getting killed by Kingsley, who decides he wants to be the Hobgoblin again. Right. And then, and then Ben Urich's nephew became the Hobgoblin. Yeah. Phil Urich's nephew kills Kingsley and decides he's going to be the Hobgoblin now. Yep. Yeah. There are lots of Hobgoblins. Yep. Um, or Roger Stern. Huh, yes. Um, that's a that's a whole thing. But yeah, I mean, it's so this is sort of tangentially connected to Inferno in that Spider-Man keeps getting attacked by inanimate objects that turn into monsters. Yeah. But we'll actually see this have consequences in the web issue. Right. That we're right. going to talk about later, which, which, which makes... I think I think happens in the same day or like the very next day. Yeah, I think next day. I guess Which this ends with, this one a little bit. Right. This ends with Harry Osborne going to bed. So I guess it would be the next day. Next day. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So I, I think, I don't know, unless Adriana has anything on this one, we might have to wait till we get to the, the web of book to really have much to say about it. Um, the only thing I want to add is, um, is it artist? Do you pronounce it? Bushima? Sal? Bushima. Bushima. Uh, I just wanted to say, I love his art. I especially love the way that he draws faces. They're they're very expressive and they have so much character to them. So that really stood out to me while I was reading. The art is very good in this issue. Um, yeah, he is he is one of the brothers Bushima, um, John Bushima and Sal Bushima. And I think Sal had a longer career in comics, didn't he? I, I think he's. I think still so. Doing I think he's still going. He still does yeah. conventions too, occasionally. I think. Yeah. Um, wow. Because I I think he he's with the same art company that handles like Ron friends and some of the other guys. And yeah. So is that Catskill work. comics? Yeah. 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 Cause they handle, um, Oh God, how can I possibly be forgetting her name? Oh, uh, Ramona, Ramona Fraden. Fraden. Yes. She's I wonderful. got a commission yeah. from her through them. They're great to work with. I, I am. I, that's one of my sort of on my list is to get, uh, something from Ramona Fraden. She's still going in her nineties and she's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and co-created Metamorpho. I think yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice art. Um, I, I was a bit surprised to see Jerry Conway doing work for Marvel into the eighties. Yeah. I didn't yeah. He wrote the still... web of St- Spider-Man issue as well. Yeah. Like this, this must've been, I don't know if it was between other runs or what the last Spider-Man issue we did was amazing. And that one was, I don't remember who wrote it. McFarlane did the art. It's, I think it was McLean. That Mitchell, sounds right. David Micheline. Yeah. Yeah. See, there's one whose name I can't say. David Micheline, Micheline, Micheline. And it's tough because you can't like a lot of these guys were working when they weren't doing video interviews or podcasts. It's hard to find like correct pronunciation. So. Right. Um, I've actually seen Carl Kessel tell people that it could be Kessel or Kessel. He'll answer to both. And he just wouldn't tell them which one was more correct. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to go ahead and take another quick break, and we'll return with our look at Fantastic Four, number 322, right after these messages. Hey, kids, comics. It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey, kids, comics was a dream given form, a place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct, and it was our last best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. 
This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all-new look at old comics and all-old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kids Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! You can have the power of the Fantastic Four. It's clobbering time! With Thing Feet and Thing Hands, the earthquake and moon-shaken power of the Thing can be yours. I am the Thing! Turn up the heat. I am the Human Torch! With the Human Torch mask and gloves. Loaded with the sounds and missile-firing action of the Human Torch. Yeah! Is Doctor Doom finished? Pizza! Thing Hands, Thing Feet, and the Human Torch mask and glove set. Each sold separately. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our second issue for today is Fantastic Four, number 322. Cover date on this is January of 1989. Writer is Steve Englehart, penciler Keith Pollard, inker Joe Sennett, colorist George So. Letterer is John Workman, editor Ralph Macchio. And we open in outer space with Graviton, uh, having last fought the West Coast Avengers, and he's been hurtled out of orbit into deep space and has had to reassert control over the sort of floating island that, that he's taken over, and he redirects it back toward Earth, uh, and he detects strange gravitational anomalies, which are all part of the Inferno event. Which is nice here in that panel that Earth is celebrating Pride Month by flying the trans colors. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> Very nice. Um, meanwhile, on Earth, Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm, and Sharon Ventura, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel, sometimes called the She-Thing, are seeing the results of Inferno all around them. Bicycles, fire hydrants, crash cans, everything is coming to life and attacking the people around them. And Johnny Storm leaps in to help. He frees a guy whose hand was being bitten by a mailbox. And the two things decide to patrol the streets to figure out what they can turn up. While Johnny Storm flies off to check in on his wife, Alicia. I'm sorry, I really hate this era of Fantastic Four. Because Alicia and Johnny Storm is a terrible match. Johnny, just crawl. Right, it's not really Alicia. (laughs) Jesus scroll, dude. Jesus scroll. Right. Um, that that's our secret invasion tie-in. You're welcome, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and so Ben Grimm and Sharon Ventura are wandering the streets, sort of freeing people from attacking inanimate objects wherever they can. And Ben is sort of explaining some of what it means to be a thing and how. Because Sharon's apparently mutated further since the last time we saw her. I didn't check the last issue, but it seems like recently she has evolved a little bit more. She's sort of following the pattern that that Jack Kirby's art style followed with Ben Grimm, where initially he was just sort of lumpy, and then eventually took the plated rock form uh, and so on. Um, and Sharon reveals she actually likes being the she-thing, that she appreciates... Uh, the power that it brings, the lack of complications to her existence as a superhuman, and so on. And Ben 
reveals that Reed Richards has told him that he actually could have changed back into a human, except that he had subconsciously blocked uh, whatever mental process would be necessary to do so, but that Sharon might actually be able to turn into a human if she really wanted to. The weird thing here is the implication is um, in her backstory, she has a very unfortunate incident of sexual assault as plot mechanic. And the, impl- the implication they're making here is she likes being the thing because it basically makes her less attractive to men who she is. Yeah. You can't yeah. see, but I, I just made a, a, an aggrieved face. Yeah. 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 80s comics. Yeah. It, it's the it's the 80s. Do a lot of coke and vote Ronald Reagan. <laughs> All right. Continue. I'm sorry. So, yes. So, yeah. Sharon Ventura yet another comic book superhero character with a very problematic ex. Johnny checks in on his wife, Alicia, who is Ben's ex-fiance. Yeah. Um, and he flies her over to, uh, I guess they're headed toward the Fantastic Four headquarters. And meanwhile, a watcher in armor is with the Dragon Man watching from outside of existence, I guess, outside of our dimension. and No, he's watching for the Empire State Building. Oh, is he in the Empire State Building? Okay. He's in the Empire State Building. 100th floor. Or, yeah, okay, yeah, on the 100th floor of the Empire State. I yep. couldn't really figure... This is clearly a Fantastic Four plot that is being continued from previous issues. Um, yeah. This is Aaron. Aaron the Rogue Watcher. Uh, not to be... Fo- yeah, not to be confused with Aaron. You done messed up, Aaron. Um, that's a different character completely. Not part of the Marvel universe. So this is a watcher who is fed up with watching and wants to actually affect change on this. Yeah, and he could also be called Aaron the Doer. That sounds saucy. <laughs> and he's observing the Fantastic Four to sort of figure out what his role in things might be, uh, and he's apparently collecting cell samples from all of them. Uh, so that he can steal their powers or, or copy their powers or something. In any case, yeah. Graviton then appears and realizes immediately that what's going on is that demons are invading the Earth and causing shenanigans, and decides that he will use his powers as befits a godlike being such as him to stop the demonic invasion. Uh, Thing and Ms. Marvel slash She-Thing. feels weird calling her Ms. Marvel because when I say that, I feel like everyone's picture either carol danvers or kamala khan and this is a very different character from both of those Uh, not to be confused with marvel girl absolutely right yes (laughs) the two things see graviton and attack him because he's a supervillain but his power over all gravity is too much for them he lifts them in the air he pins them to the ground uh he smacks them into each other lots of super powered fighting and just when all hope is lost, Johnny Storm shows up. But before he even throw a single fireball, Graviton uh, is able to use his gravity powers to pull all of the air away from Johnny, I guess. And so he can't stay uh, ignited. He crashes to the ground next to the two things. And while Graviton is momentarily distracted, Johnny is able to reignite his flame and intensify it the point that he actually creates a high pressure area around him pulling more air in faster than Graviton can remove it and doesn't quite go supernova 
but he intensifies further. He creates flaming duplicates of himself and overwhelms Graviton until the thing can dig himself out of the rubble and lure the guy with one punch. Uh, All of this impresses the Rogue Watcher, who thinks that uh, the consequences of defeating the one guy who might have easily stopped the demonic invasion versus the consequences of letting him perhaps take over the world are more complex than he had thought. That that action versus passivity uh, involves thinking about any number of consequences and outcomes. Johnny and the two things uh, reconnect fight, and Johnny has trouble turning off his flame. Uh, He has to to try harder than usual to uh, stop burning, and that's never happened before. He hopes it's not related to the craziness going on, but he has a feeling that this story is a long way from being over, and he's right. There's a lot more of it. It's... I think we talked about this off mic. Uh, I'm not a fan of this era of the Fantastic Four. I Yeah, not me. Not mine. Um, It's... It's a really goofy lineup. Like the Fantastic Four has always been about, you know, high science, super science adventure. And you don't have a single scientist on this team. It it reduces them to just a standard superhero team, which the Fantastic Four are not. It's also more than a it's one of the original comics to to really emphasize the interpersonal relationships of the character. And so to have a whole issue without Reed and Sue feels weird. Yeah, and also to your point, Trey, that interpersonal stuff with the characters wasn't even really present in this issue either because it was mostly action. So for me, as someone who is not very familiar with the Fantastic Four, I didn't really know what was going on with these characters or where they were at. So, you know, I come in, read this, and it's mostly just action with, with Graviton. It was not very engaging for me. Graviton, who is not a Fantastic Four villain. He's yeah, an Avengers I, villain. Also, his name mm-hmm. sounds like some kind of carnival ride yes <laughs> <laughs> come ride the graviton today at six flags so this yeah. is definitely my least favorite of the five issues that we read for this episode yeah, yeah. and it's also just... the, the the version i found was one of those digitally recolored comics so it looked kind of ugly too yeah there's a certain novelty to seeing this very brief moment where the thing was redesigned where he had the secondary mutation but that that yeah. wore off pretty quick. <laughs> I sort of got tired of that design after a couple pages. The only time I ever saw it done well, actually, um, surprisingly enough, was by Todd McFarlane. Todd McFarlane he shows McFarlane up draws this a way. Good thing. Yeah, he shows up this way in one of the early Venom stories when Sp- Spider Man goes to the Fantastic Four saying, "Hey, that alien costume you, you guys helped me get rid of, it's back." <laughs> and um, only Ben is home at that time. He's just lifting weights and it looked really cool. At least to, you know, like 12 year old me when I read it. So, <laughs> but it's just, like I said, it's a weird lineup. You've got Johnny storm who is canonically one of the dumbest people in reality. <laughs> uh, Johnny storm, Spider-Man's himbo friend. Yes. You've got Ben Grimm, lovable, ever loving blue eyed thing, but not, you know, the smartest person in the room. Sure. You've got, Ben Graham's current girlfriend, who has the powers that are exactly the same of his, as his, which is just like, who thought that was a good team dynamic? Let's put someone on a team that's exactly the same powers as him. As him. It, that seems like it might be some got, kind of editorial mandate or something. I don't know. And then you've got Crystal to steal a line from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 
not appearing in this issue. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, just, it's not my favorite. And, and th- so there's, I guess there's something interesting, at least about the irony of this one guy shows up, could have put a stop to the entire event, like 10 issues in and they smack him in the face and it doesn't happen. Like the, the, the irony there is kind of funny. I don't know that that's worthy of a whole issue though. So in yeah. other words, Trey, you can blame the fantastic four for Inferno happening. Like, right. Limbo comes right. to New York City all because of Fantastic Four. Although, as as the Watcher guy points out, if they had let Graviton do it, like they would have been trading one invasion for another. Sure. So, but yeah, it, it, not a lot to this one, really. Unfortunately, I, I was looking forward to it before I realized what era of Fantastic Four this was. <laughs> Yeah. Which is weird, because Englehart's not a bad writer. I think it's just where the story was at at this point didn't lend itself to things that I'm into. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, they started talking about the West Coast Avengers, like, hmm, they're paying a lot of attention to the West Coast Avengers here. Is this Englehart? Yep, this is Englehart. <laughs> yep. But if, you know, we're looking for Reed and Sue, don't worry, they will show up later in this crossover. Right, right. Just we're getting on there. the wrong team. Right. Oh, that's right, because this is, this is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but they joined the Avengers for him. Yeah, <laughs> no, Graviton doesn't appear again until Acts of Vengeance. Wow, Acts of Vengeance was a good crossover. That's a very good crossover. Oh, Adriana, in yeah. case you, you weren't weren't aware, um, this is a brief period where Johnny Storm was married to Alicia Masters. Okay, but it turns out later to be a scroll. Oh, that's Elijah. fun. That yeah. was because at some point after this, they realized that. Having Johnny marry Ben's girlfriend was weird, <laughs> and and so she was a scroll. Kind of, it still stays on the Johnny's team for part. a while. Yep, Legion of Laser Fist. First issue of Fantastic Four I ever bought had her in it as a scroll. Yep. All right. When Namor was hanging around a lot too, but like corporate Namor was, in a business suit. Was this the period where Reed was dead? He was missing, presumed dead. I think. Okay, and we had Scott Lang join the team. I've got a few issues of that. Like Sue was kind of involved with Namor too at one point, right? They well, she was a widow. To be fair to her, she was a widow. Oh, I no judgment for me, as Connor <laughs> from Cerebro says. Like, you know, fuck that fish man or whatever. Like, <laughs> get it? But I just want to. I, I like. I remember that was a thing. So I, I feel you know like what? that was a thing. Yeah, that might be the episode title. We'll see. <laughs> uh, in fact, I have an issue from. Well, it was a little later than this. This was probably like late '90s, but it's a Fantastic Four issue with with uh, Ant Man in it, um, where the villain turns out to be Grasu, the giant ant from the very first episode of Tomb of Ideas, <laughs> in what ended up being retconned into being a uh, uh, Ulysses Bloodstone story. Um, and the thing about Scott Lang on the team is he worked because he is a scientist, He's an so engineer, he works. At least. Yeah, he works in the context of, okay, if we can't have Reed, we need to have another super smart dude. Yeah. Anyway. Um, in fact, they, they revisited that um, with the uh, the book FF 2010s. Mike Allred I want to read that. So the art was great. Yeah, I want to read um, that because Allred art is good stuff. It was, it was Allred and Matt Fraction. Ooh, um, yeah, great combo. Team. Yeah, and the idea was the Fantastic Four were off doing intergalactic, interdimensional stuff. So they left a backup team behind and it's, it's Scott Lang, She-Hulk, Medusa, and 
um, a, a character called Miss Thing, which is she's a she's like a pop star wearing a thing suit, a robotic thing suit. It's really great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we're gonna go ahead and take another quick break, listeners. You can go ahead and run to the fridge to get some drink to wipe wash the taste of this issue out of your mouth, and we'll be right back with our look at Web of Spider Man number forty seven right after these messages. Drama, lust, snark, comedy, heartbreak, creativity, poetry, illicit affairs, rage, revenge, testosterone poisoning, gunshots, sculpture, feminine hygiene products, naked car crashes. You know what we haven't had in a long time? And liver. Terry Moore, Strangers in Paradise, the audio adaptation, coming to your ear holes in late 2020 on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Liver is my life. Want some web power? It's yours with the amazing new Spider-Man Web Blaster. It's Hobgoblin. Get him. Load the web cartridge. And Web Blaster lets you shoot webs just like Spidey. There he is. Web Blaster comes with 600 feet of crime-busting web. <laughs> we got him here. No, we got him here. With the awesome Spider-Man Web Blaster, you've got the bad guys covered. Where'd he go? There he is. Get him. Each Spider-Man Web Blaster is sold separately and comes with two web fluid cartridges. Additional refills sold separately. Welcome back, Toon Believers, to our next issue. And we are looking at Web of Spider-Man number 47. As advertised on this cover... The Hobgoblin returns. And they're not just digging us around this time, guys. He really does return. Yep. He's not just on the uh, cover. He's on the first page. He gets yep. attacked with a rake. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We'll talk. It's good stuff. Uh, the writer on this one is Jerry Conway. Penciler is Alex Saviak. Saviak? Saviak? Yes. Anchor is Keith Williams. Letter is R. Rob... R. Parker, colors is Jay Cohen, editor is Jim Sullacrup, and Tom DeFalco, editor in chief. So first off, let's look at that cover because that is a good cover. It is a good cover. It is uh, Saviak doing the cover, and it's you know the Spider-Man in the grass of a giant hobgoblin. It's a sort of sort of reminds me of like late silver into Bronze Age Batman covers, where you'd have like a giant Joker like uh, yeah. menacing a tiny Batman. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Name of this story is The Face in the Mirror. We begin with the Hobgoblin searching through the ruins of the Osborne chemical plant. Just these come upon by a certain wall-crawling hero. Any guesses? Guesses? Yes, it's Spider-Man. And Spider-Man has come upon the Hobgoblin, and there's a big fighty fight. Uh, Then all of a sudden... The ruins of the chemical plant come to life and begin attacking Spider-Man. Uh, Hobgoblin's like, hey, I'm not responsible for this, but I'm not looking to give course the mouth. See ya. Um, he gets away as Spider-Man escapes. We catch up with some of the supporting characters at the mall. And of course, we see an escalator come to life and try to eat people. We then cut 
to May Parker's house, where May is hosting a pancake breakfast for um, Mary Jane, Peter, uh, Mary Jane's cousin Chrissy, and some of her tenants, because this is the era where where May was running a um, boarding house. Um, Again, people comment on the fact that Chrissy can really put food away, and Mary Jane and Peter um, spring on Chrissy that she's going to be staying with May for now on, which... I feel like they should talk about that with her first. Like, hey, here's this old lady you've never met before in your life, but shove. Although I guess if if she's Mary Jane's niece, is that right? Near Mary Jane's cousin. Cousin. Cousin, cousin Chrissy. And, and she's and, a child, basically. Yeah, too, and Aunt so. May is like best friends with Mary Jane's aunt. Aunt. Anna Watson. Right. So I, I guess there's enough closeness there that may would probably be now i'm wondering where anna watson is right because like she's why not leave her with anna maybe she's actual, in florida at this actual point. actual relation yeah yeah she might be in florida at this point and there's a point where like everybody ends up in florida at different huh. points spider-man takes his leave while chrissy creeps on him um to go and visit on the osborne household where he startles liz allen and is told that Harry is up in the attic. And Harry is indeed up in the attic, looking through the attic for reasons he's not quite sure of. He just feels strangely compelled to. This won't come back later at all. Luckily, I guess, Hobgoblin attacks the Osborne house at this time, looking to interrogate Harry for the location of something. And so Harry hits him with a rake. Good job, Harry. Harry's not going to sit around and do nothing. Best thing Harry does the whole issue, right there. It is. It is. There is some fighty fight. The pool gets exploded. Then the hobgoblin sprays Spiderman's face with a toxin. But luckily, Spiderman falls into the pool and it washes the toxin away. Hobgoblin makes his escape. Meanwhile, the Daily Bugle building, Jameson seems to finally notice that, hey, New York seems to be going to hell. And then at the Osborne household, Harry finally finds the thing he was looking for in the attic. His father's old green goblin costume. Dun, dun, dun! It was a good issue. Yeah, I enjoyed it. This plus the spectacular issue equals one story. Yeah, which is what the Spider-Man books were going for, like we talked about. Sure, they were, sure. They wanted you to absolutely have to go pick up the other Spider-Man books. But, like, the, the family, the drama with Harry, it works for me. It works surprisingly well for me. Yeah, and I, I admittedly haven't read a lot of this era of the the hobgoblin stuff i read the original hobgoblin story and i've read some of the later stuff but this this middle period here i don't know i I didn't realize harry was so involved in it yeah yeah and even if you strip away the superhero supervillain elements it still really works as a like a story about struggling with mental health and generational trauma uh and so i found that really engaging as well yeah yeah the, the harry doesn't even really remember the supervillain stuff. He is just a guy who was simultaneously mistreated by and idolized his father. And and that combination has just done some serious work on him. Yeah. It really has. And it, it, I don't think it's ever been successfully portrayed in any of the Spider-Man media, like adaptations to media, the effect. Because they tried. They tried with the Raimi spider. Yeah, I, I'd say 
films. The, the first two Spider-Man movies did a pretty good job of laying groundwork for it. And then the third movie was such a created by committee hodgepodge of ideas that they lost that. Th- yeah. Yeah. They tried again in amazing. Um, yeah. I, I, I think, in fact, I think the only Spider-Man media, which really looked at the effect that Norman Osborn had on Harry Osborn, the best was the cartoon spectacular Spider-Man where it's revealed there that the hob, sorry, that the green goblin is actually Harry Osborn. Right. And, and the nineties cartoon did, uh, um, a closer to the comics where where you have the Norman Goblin, and I think Harry becomes the Goblin for. A yeah, probably. It's it's really interesting. It's it's just all I can say about it. It's it's a really interesting dynamic they got going there. On the flip side of the coin, there we have Chrissy, right? Who her main character characteristics seem to be creeping on Mary Jane's husband, and man, she could put food away. And what's really upsetting about that... I, I know where that's going. It, it, it It's setting up for a bulimia storyline. Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. I, 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 uh, like, the implication in the previous issue is that Chrissy is there not because her family went off to Europe, but because she's running away from home to be a model in New York. And she's led Mary Jane to believe that she's run away, that she's, you know, being sent by his parents. We find out later that her parents really did go off to, to Europe and left her behind. And this is when her parents are visiting her in the hospital after she's had a very basically health crisis brought on by bulimia. And the way it's just treated like a joke in all this. Because, uh. you know, the best way to handle a child with an eating disorder is to incessantly comment on how much they eat. And, and what effect it does or does not have on their body. Yeah. And like Mary Jane's a model, she would know about this crap. Like, I just uh... for what it's worth, it seems like Conway later on. I don't know if 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 regret was the word, but he does go back to this character in like 2019 mm-hmm. and and wrote a comic called uh, "The Amazing Spider-Man Going Big." And in it, she has sort of gotten treatment and is living a much happier life and is an ESU student and regularly meets up with MJ for lunch. So, so she, she does, Jerry Conway did go back and sort of give the character a better ending. That's good to know. Um, This is something that Liam and Doug and I ran into a lot when we were doing our show on Alpha Flight and we were revisiting those old issues of Alpha Flight is that, you know, at the time these comics were written, people just had a different understanding of mental health issues and things like eating disorder. So you kind of, and it can be very jarring. So you kind of just have to contextualize it that way. Like, but it is, it is very strange how, uh, like her eating disorder in these comics is treated very, um, flippantly, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, or it's just kind of like a joke or, or it's not treated with the gravity that we would expect it to be now but it's almost like there's an obliviousness yeah that, that they're they're sort of refusing to see what it really is yeah it's it's kind of like they were trying to do something they were trying to do something they're trying to do it make you know a an issue comic right as it, i guess you call it where an, yeah. an issue issue but looking at it from with modern eyes right it does seem a bit ham-fisted especially when at least at this point it doesn't seem like they have anything to say about the issue you know it's not it's just dressing yeah uh but that being said we're gonna go ahead and take another quick break and we'll return with our look 
at Exterminators number three, right after these messages. Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to The Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. You're two years old, developing a strong sense of self. This week, yourself is a superhero wearing Pampers Easy Ups. They fit like real underwear. Super underwear. Easy Ups. Created by Pampers. Yep. Next up, we have Exterminators number three. Uh, it was published in December of 1988, um, written by the great Louis Simonson, uh, pencils by John Bogdanovi, Al Milgram on inks, and then we have Bob Harris as the editor. So before I get into the plot synopsis, I should probably say that prior to this issue, a whiz kid gets captured uh, by some demons. And so uh, his fellow exterminators are trying to figure out... Um, what happened to him and they're trying to locate this this graveyard where they think he disappeared and so the issue opens with the exterminators at the new york public library uh and they've decided that they could find some aerial maps of the city and that'll help them kind of locate where this graveyard is but while they're at the library they start getting attacked by books that come to life um so they narrowly escape the books only to then be attacked outside by a lion statue that briefly comes to life and then it goes back to its stone form and they're kind of bewildered because you know it's not every day that you get attacked by various inanimate objects so meanwhile as this is happening uh we find out you know whiz kid is with the demon nastir and nastir is trying to open this portal uh from limbo to uh, the earthly realm and he wants WizKid to help build this kind of super computer that will allow him to more effectively cast his spells. Uh, he also has several infants that he's kidnapped that he plans on sacrificing so that he that the portal uh, from Limbo to Earth remains open. And, you know, this, we're really getting into the Marvel horror stuff here because we've got... Uh, yeah. Finally, because uh, we've got child sacrifice going on. That's on the table now. The so, best reason to have children. Yes. So WizKid is initially uh, resistant. He doesn't want to help Nastir. Um, and eventually he kind of negotiates that uh, he'll, he'll help him, but he demands some health food and he wants um, Artie and Leech to be released, basically. As all this is happening, we go back to... The exterminators, they are on the subway. They're trying to make their way to the cemetery. There's a great moment where Nastir is monologuing and he kind of throws, sh- throws shade at the MTA. He's like, you know, the New York City subway sucks all the time, but now it's going to be even worse. Uh, so he, they're on the subway and they wind up getting attacked by the train conductor who turns into a demon. And uh, they, they, they neutralize him. Um, but they're kind of too late uh, because Wizkid 
isn't able to to distract Nasir for very long, and eventually the supercomputer gets built. So, uh, and then the, then the uh, exterminators kind of show up, fight the demons, but they get defeated, and the portal starts opening, and that's kind of where we leave things. So we've talked about previous issues how a lot of exterminators seems to owe something to pop culture of the eighties. This issue owes a lot to Ghostbusters. Well, and they even call it out. They do. It's like something out of Ghostbusters. Yeah. There's also a movie. I mean, it's a B movie that a lot of people don't know. So I'm sure they weren't referencing this. But there's a movie called The Curse of the Blue Lights. And that involves uh, some teenager stumbling on a graveyard and getting kidnapped by demons and taken to the underworld. And they have to fight demons. So that that premise is very similar. Yeah. There we go. I, there's I, also just very much, they say Ghostbusters, but there's something about a group of teens rushing to the library to find old maps that just feels very somewhere between Scooby-Doo and the Hardy Boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely like a big like kid adventure thing going on with this. And, and we talked about with the, the first couple of issues that it was reminding us of things like the Goonies. Yeah. Yeah. But I really like it. Like, it's, Me too. I wouldn't think that, like, exter- Exterminators, this obscure miniseries from the 80s, would be one of the highlights of Inferno for me so far, but it really is. It's just a fun book. It feels very much like teen 80s comedies. I will also say, I went into this miniseries, the moment WizKid was introduced, I was convinced I was going to hate him. But he has increasingly become one of my favorite parts of the book. He's awesome. And I have yeah. to say, once you get into the Krakoa stuff, like after Hickman uh, kind of reboots the franchise, WizKid is up to some cool stuff in S.W.O.R.D., which is there's like a space station and like Magneto is there and like WizKid and Abigail Brand. And it's really cool. But That's, you should check that out. I always liked Abigail Brand. Al Ewing writes that one. Very nice. Al Ewing is fantastic. So Yes, he sure is. Um, John Bogdanoff continues to do well with the artwork here. Um, again, dropping brand names like there's no tomorrow. Pampers makes an appearance. Sony, <laughs> IBM, all on one page. Also, that that demon conductor just looks really cool. Yeah. I really like that panel. That also feels like the sort of gag that you would see in a Ghostbusters movie. Yes. Where the conductor turns around and has a demon face. Yeah. Very much so. This issue holds distinction so far of being the most inferno 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 issue we've talked about so far this yeah. episode this is i mean this is straight until up. the new mutants issue well yes yes um but yeah i mean most of this issue is seeing exactly what nastir is up to right and yeah. what his intentions are including yeah. sacrificing infants i'm gonna we bring that, that here in a, a way that we didn't get in previous issues of anything um he's sort of been lurking on the sidelines a lot yeah, he can bring up the sacrifice the infants thing, and that I just can't <laughs> help but chuckle at it. I like that he needs the exact number of infants. Yeah, like he he's and we figure out why later. He's completing like points in a st- points on a grid pentagram. Yeah, a really complicated one. It's really cool. Uh, now to see what's happening on the other side of this, on the other side of the dimensional wall, as it were, we have to go to the new mutants issue, right? Um, and we get a hint at this at the very end of the issue when Nastir says the dark child who controls Limbo's teleportation right. discs forces her way through. Yeah, which uh, is some very nice synergy there. Yes, yes. 
the 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 interconnectedness of the X books here, I think, is working a little bit better than the the Spider books that we covered. Not that the Spider yeah. books were bad, but I think they do a better job of of both telling a distinct story while also interconnecting, rather than making it feel like everything is just sort of spread out across multiple books. Yeah, yeah. The Spider Man stuff feels like it's all happening before this, yes. like as part of the lead up, and that's all often a problems that people have with like these crossovers like how many days is this taking place over the course of how many nights do we have in the middle here because you know it might seem like you know only a day's passed in the x books and aspiring books has been like a week right anyway uh i think we can go ahead and move on to our next issue which is new mutants number 71 so new mutants number 71 uh cover date was january 1989 writer louis simonson Penciler is Brett Blevins, inker Al Williamson, colorist Glennis Oliver, letterer Joe Rosen, editors Bob Harris and Mark. And New Mutants begins with our heroes emerging in limbo. And unlike their usual trips to limbo, where it is just sort of a way station for them to pass through as they teleport to their next stop, uh, now they're being attacked by techno-organic demons, which sounds terrifying. And Ileana is not able to reopen her portal right away, so they have to stay and fight. And so there is a lot of fighting. Uh, Cannonball charges through a bunch of them. Danny is able to to summon a, a spear to fight some of the demons. Warlock takes out a bunch of them. Looks like he turns into he shifts into a, like a mallet or a cartoon style, which is funny. Uh, and Ileana is trying to assert her authority as the ruler of Limbo, but Sim, the techno-organic demon who thinks he is in charge of what Nastir is up to, is able to resist her. He fights back and steals her soul sword, and Ileana just barely is able to summon a portal so that the new mutants can. But they do not escape to Earth, but rather to another part of Limbo. Um, They arrive in... Velasco's throne room, where at least in one version of events, she killed the X-Men. Um, and so they're surrounded by skeletons and bones and pieces of Nightcrawler and Shadowcat and Wolverine and several of the others. Um, and and the New Mutants are insisting you know, that the X-Men are dead, but they died on Earth, and only recently. None of this could have happened. But time is different in Limbo, uh, alternate timelines, alternate choices. Um, Ileana's backstory can be a little bit complicated. It's sort of the moral of this story. <laughs> and that's another character backstory that involves, like, sexual assault. So Yes. Yeah. Which, which is sort of hinted at here, but not explicitly yeah. dealt with. The demons are able to trace them to their new location, and so Ileana summons yet another uh, portal, and they emerge right next to Colossus's corpse, because this book is kind of creepy. Uh, it turns out they're actually in the past now, where Ileana, as a little girl, is being chased by Sim, uh, which apparently was a thing that happened a lot, Sim punishing her for uh, imagined transgressions. And as Sim is dragging her away, the New Mutants want to intervene, but Ileana stops them because not to... to Cross franchises, but this is a fixed point in time, and these things need to happen. Um, and 
At that point, Nastir appears and rescues child Ileana from Sim. Um, and before they can really react to any of that, they teleport away again. Meanwhile, in New York, the present, the Empire State Building is growing, um, and the Hellfire Club is observing and trying to figure out what's going on. So we have Magneto, we have um, the White Queen, we have Shaw, and we have... Um, so uh, Magneto is the White King, Emma Frost is the White Queen, Sebastian Shaw is the Black King, and Celine is the Black Queen. Yeah, apparently they're watching from the same vantage point as Aaron, the the rogue watcher. Seemingly, or at least from an upper level of the building. Right. Um, one of the uh, telescopic sort of observation things that you put a quarter in uh, comes to life and steals a guy's eyes, which is wonderfully gruesome. gruesome scene. Yeah, wonderfully yes. gruesome. <laughs> uh, my eyes now like him. It's kind of a Freddy Krueger moment. <laughs> it is. Um, and... Magneto attacks it. The antenna of the building starts to collapse. But luckily, the Hellfire Club's outfits are all laced with steel so that Magneto can catch everyone. (laughs) Or kill them all, you know, his choice. Sure. A bunch of people rush into the elevators to escape, but the elevator basically zooms them all and smushes them up. It's very bloody, surprisingly, for an 80s book. Um, Yeah. That's like in The Shining. The elevator yeah. with blood pouring out, yeah. With added bones. Yes. yes. Uh, Nastir is watching all of this from a crystal ball, uh, which seems to be simultaneous with the events of Exterminators 3. Um, the new mutants appear where a version of Nastir is, is present. Uh, it's the a far dimension in an earlier time. Um, and... Nastir reveals that he has been watching Ileana using precognitive magic, and he summoned them into the past via a spell of his own devising. And we learn a little bit of N- about Nastir's backstory here, that he wanted to be a, a sorcerer under Belasco's tutorship, but Belasco only preferred human students, and so uh, Nastir as a demon was rejected. But he stole a book of spells and practiced and mastered them all anyway from the past. And has basically been playing Sim to achieve his own objective of of invading and, and taking over Earth. And he also seems to have some sort of affection for Ileana um, and offers to help her. He tells her she has the power to return to Earth if she chooses, but that she needs to take back her soul sword from Sim. And and so he offers to send her back, send Ileana back to Sim in order to take the sword. Um, that he Nastir does not deny that he might benefit from this, but that he doesn't see that she has much choice. Well, he kind of blackmails her. He's like, "You have to become my bride." Right. He says, "Someday, perhaps, you'll return to me as my dark bride, if you so choose." Which mm. weird, creepy. I'm doubtful about how much agency she's going to have in that decision, but yes, yes. The, the, the qualifiers there seem a little bit weak. <laughs> but Ileana sort of dismisses the other uh, team member's concern, saying that uh, what's important is the here and now, not what might happen in the future. And so she says they have a bargain. She'll take back the sword. And so she rushes in. She takes the sword from uh, Sim, while also telling Sim that Nastir has betrayed him. At this point, Ileana mutates into full demonic form. 
um, and opens a portal back to Earth. But once they've come through the portal, she realizes that Nestir has tripped her. She can't close the portal again. And now demons are literally pouring into Manhattan. Like, the way they do this is really fun, because you have Nestir from the past manipulating the New Mutants. And you've got Nestir in the present day manipulating the Exterminators. Because Nestir from the past is manipulating to get the portal open. Nestir from the present day is making sure it stays open. Yeah. Right. Right. With infant sacrifices. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and pentagrams made of glowing babies. Yeah. It's just, wow. Like, again, it's the most inferno we get in this issue. And yeah. it is good. Yeah. Like, we talked about it a little bit during our summary trade, but, like, these horror scenes are really horrible. They're gruesome. Yeah. But, but also in that kind of fun way that 80s horror could do, you know? Like, like it... It knows it's being gruesome and is kind of winking at you. Yeah, exactly. And Ileana is really going through it in this issue. And I think that kind of compounds the horror aspect of this issue as well, because, you know, she she's really dealing with like a lot of of guilt and mental anguish. And she's getting her her realities and timelines confused. So she is like in this guilt spiral over murdering her friends and um there's some upsetting imagery attached to that as well so just this this issue really delivers on the horror elements like in in every respect and a thing i didn't really touch on but sort of compounding all of that is that wolfsbane is kind of having a breakdown as all of this is going on she's always having a breakdown (laughs) but but that's behind every decision they make other members of the team are like, you need to hurry up. I don't think Rain can take much more of this. Which is unfair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I don't think this version of Rain can, honestly. Like, she is, like Trey said, having a bit of a breakdown here. Now, l- versions we see later are much stronger characters. For example, the version that we see in X-Factor, and the version, well, version we see in X-Factor, and the version we see in X-Factor, and the version we see in X-Factor. Well, it, also, I, I think... Was next force for me. Was that her? Or was that Feral? I don't remember. Oh, I, I think it might have been Feral. Okay. Unless we're talking about the mo- more modern day Black Ops X Factor. This would have been X-Force. more modern day. Okay, maybe. In any case, uh, at this point in the New Mutants' existence, Wolfsbane is a little bit of a fragile character, and they're leaning hard into that. Um, I like the artwork here uh, by Brett Blivens. It's kind of that cartoony style. Um, I do think this Gossamer character is only there because Brett Blevins likes drawing her. Huh. Um, but other, besides that, it's, it's pretty solid. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, if I had to pick, I think I like the exterminators art a little bit better. Yeah. Bogdanoff, um, hard to beat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but this is really good. And I think it would be easy to. It would be easy for the art to make all of these jumps through time and space even more confusing than than they already are. And I think the art does a good job of helping keep track of these. And they do it, the Simonsons. I think it's, is it Louise Simonson on? Louise, yeah. Okay, yep. Louise Simonson does just a great job of the tension here. Mm-hmm. The tension building and the horror the New Mutants have towards Ileana, like, growing the further they get in limbo and they, the more they learn about her past, it's it's really good. 
like there are whole panels there's reaction shots of the new mutants to the stuff they're learning and the things like finding Colossus's body. It's really good. And and just that there's so much about Ileana as a person and what she's been through that they had no frame of reference. Yeah. And that's an interesting aspect of her character as well, that she is the same age as them, but the things she has experienced they, that like they could not possibly understand or relate to what she has endured. And I've always thought that was an interesting kind of, I feel like that should be explored more just like what that feels like for her to be around all these people her age and just unable to like feeling some degree of alienation, which I mean, that has been explored, but I feel like you could do so much more with it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's good. It is really good. This is sort of tipping my hand here, but I'm not the biggest fan of Warlock. And so that he's not in this issue a whole lot works in its favor for me. (laughs) At least he hasn't possessed his best friend's dead body yet again. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. This is true. One aside from that one big fight scene at the beginning, he's kind of a silent presence through the rest of the issue. Yeah, which is unusual for him. But I think I think but appreciated in my case, (laughs) I think Louis Simonson realized that, hey, we need a somber tone here. Right, right. And it really works. Agree. I, I, I even like the, the even though it sort of pulls a, pulls us out away from the main story, I like the little uh, aside we get with the Hellfire Club, just to sort of have a, a bit of a look at what's going on in New York in the present. But with this, I think we could actually say Inferno has started. Yes. This oh, yeah. is the, the final page. Uh, the Inferno, portal is open. Inferno is here, is the final line of the book. And wow, like if I had been following this as a kid, my mind had been blown, like the slow build to it. And honestly, you know, we talk about the the tie in issues being kind of eh, as far as their involvement with. I kind of like that. I read them, though, because it yeah. it helps build that tension. It yeah. gives us an idea of, OK, here's what's going on up to this point, And then boom. And, and, and to what you were saying earlier, James, about the the tie-in issues seeming to take place over days or in some cases, maybe even weeks that adds to the slow burn of it all. Um, Not to do punny about it, but, but you know, it it would be very easy (laughs) to just rush through the main books and, and boom, Inferno done. But, but they really do let this sort of gradually build over all of these different issues affect basically every character that's in New York. Yeah. Kind of cool. And that it just helps add like it helps um uh really drive home the gravity of the situation and how much all of these characters we know and love are affected by the situation. And 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 that they're not all affected to the same degree, right? Right. Like mm-hmm. the, the Fantastic Four issue is almost kind of a, a comedy of errors kind of thing. Like like they they see the superficial like trash can and, and uh, mailbox and stuff coming to life, but they don't really see any of the demonic stuff happen. Um, whereas some of the other characters are, are seeing more of what the X characters are seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and then you've got uh, Daredevil, who in a delirious state fights a vacuum cleaner. You know, everyone has a different experience. And part of that is the order we're reading it in. We found a reading order online, but there are lots of different reading orders for Inferno. 
Right. Like there is a lot of argument over what is the proper order to read these issues. Like I've seen some reading orders which put like say the Spider-Man issues much earlier in the reading order than what we have them here. The so. basic, there, there are some that basically as soon as characters start commenting on how hot it is this summer is when mm-hmm. you start reading. Yeah. yeah. My reading order up to this point has been just reading the X books and none of the tie-ins. So this <laughs> sure. is my first time reading the Spider-Man and Fantastic Four tie-in stuff. Oh, the Avengers yeah. one was great. It had Jarvis beating up demons. It's The Avengers issue is at a time when the Avengers had disbanded. So there are no Avengers. So it's just Jarvis wandering around the city as demonic shenanigans are. That does sound pretty awesome. I have to check that out. <laughs> it really was. It was fun. But, but yeah, but but this these two issues together, Exterminators and New Mutants. One, I'm glad that we read them back to back like that because they really do you get the sense that these are things that are happening simultaneously. Right. Um and and it really does feel like those two stories together are the first big story beat of inferno mm-hmm. that everything to this point has been kind of a prelude yeah so love the listeners that means inferno is here and that is the end of our coverage for these issues uh, but of course uh this won't be the end of our coverage for inferno because oh, no. there's way more of that trust me <laughs> things are really heating up now yes <laughs> see i think that was intentional that was intentional right there <laughs> that was in fact your homework for this episode is avengers number 299 amazing spider-man 312 x-factor 36 uncanny x-men 240 and power pack number 42 and adriana would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you sure um i am still on twitter for some reason so (laughs) you can find me at E-A-D-X-B-B, which is a guitar tuning, in case you're wondering. And I really need a better Twitter handle. Um, I should probably promote my current Cinepunks podcast. Um, so I I mentioned earlier, I used to do um, a podcast about Alpha Flight with two of my Cinepunks colleagues. That show is no more. But we currently do a show about the life and work of filmmaker Paul Bartell called Bartell Me Something Good. And that is part of the Cinema Smorgasbord collection of podcasts. Um, and you can find that on cinemasmorgasbord.com or on cinepunks.com, whichever you prefer. Very good. Very and cool. of course, love listeners, if you want to find me or Trey, you can also find us on Twitter for some reason. Uh, yeah, at, we're still there. Hanging yeah. on. Although by the time this episode comes out, maybe Twitter will be dead. <laughs> There's well, a possibility. I, who I knows? Mean, I guess... If we happen to be one of the first 600 tweets that you're able to see that day. Then. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's, here's hoping. Fingers crossed. Um, you can find us at Tomb of Ideas. That's also our Instagram. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And if you want to drop us a line on the good old-fashioned email, you can do so at Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com. And just like uh, Cinema Sporges Board, we are proud members of Cinepunks. You can find our whole back catalog at Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. Uh, you'll also find other great shows like The Carnage Report, like Twitch of the Death Nerve, like the flagship Cinepunks show, and a whole lot more. So be sure to check out Cinepunks.com. Good and stuff. once again, Adriana, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And it's always nice to have uh, someone else's perspective on on these books instead of just 
the two of us talking at each other. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for uh, letting me come on here and talk, even though I do not have as extensive uh, uh, understanding of the Marvel universe as maybe you guys or some of the other guests, but it was, it's been fun. That is never a prerequisite for this show. You do not have to be an expert to to come on. (laughs) Anyway, lovely listeners, that does it for this episode of our summer long inferno invent. And until next time, Tomb Believers, bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tomb Believers, Excelsior. <laughs>